You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Again, it's great to be with you guys this morning, whether I'm in your living room or kitchen or maybe den. Um, We got dressed up. I hope some of y'all did. Um, I saw Clint in a tie for like the second time in my life, so that's exciting. Um, But glad to be with you to celebrate this truth that we that really is our all, that Jesus is alive. Um, many of you guys know, if you've been around for a while, that I'm a movie guy, and I'm one of those annoying movie guys who is always trying to figure out what's going to happen and, and, and try to figure out the ending before it happens. And I guess it's because I've seen so many movies, but I've, I've learned to pick up the hints Right, uh, writers or, or movies have a literary device often called foreshadowing. Um, and that's where the author gives a hint, drops little subtle hints sometimes, sometimes they're not so subtle, but hints about what is coming, what is going to happen in the end. And if you're paying attention, you can pick them up and you can figure it out. And this is common through books and movies and stories of all types. And so you think about some of the more common or, or kind of big movies, think about uh, in The Karate Kid, so you have, there's Mr. Miyagi, on the pier practicing this weird kicking thing called the crane technique. And sure enough, what's gonna happen in the end is Daniel's son is going to use the crane technique. Or in the, in the classic Jaws, when they're going out on the boat to get the shark and they knock over the scuba tanks and, and Hooper says, uh, you gotta be careful with these, they're dangerous. And then the old salty Quint says, I don't know what a shark would do with them, maybe he'll eat them or something, which is exactly what happens. Uh, or in Shawshank Redemption, when uh, the warden holds the Bible through the bars and hands it back to Andy Dufresne and says, salvation lies within. And that is where he's hiding his little pickaxe. He's gonna dig through the wall and escape Shawshank. Or even even more subtle, some of you probably never seen this one in the old Back to the Future in that opening sequence when you just have a bunch of clocks. Just, just, just all sorts of different clocks. If you notice on one of the clocks, if you, if you blink, you'll miss it. There's a little clock Doc Brown model hanging on one of the arms of the clock as it kind of scans by. It's foreshadowing what would happen. And the key with foreshadowing is it, it reveals how the conflict, how the, the, the tension of the story is going to be resolved, right? So how are we gonna beat the Cobra Kai? We're gonna use the crane technique. How are we gonna kill the shark? We're gonna use the scuba tank. How are we gonna get out of jail? We're gonna use the pickaxe hidden in the Bible, right? How are we going to uh, get Marty McFly back to the future? Well, there's gonna be lightning that strikes a clock tower. And so it's subtle, but it's showing you what is going to happen. It's foreshadowing how this thing is resolved. And we're gonna look at a text today that that, that element of foreshadowing is, is prevalent. And it's not just foreshadowing in this story, it's actually gonna foreshadow the story of the Bible, the tension The conflict in the Bible of how could a holy God have fellowship with sinful man? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none who seeks God, no, not one. How can God reconcile that relationship? How's he going to fix that problem so that we might have a right relationship with him again? Uh, that's what this, this narrative is gonna really foreshadow. And, and God, throughout the Old Testament, constantly sends hints and prophecies and points. He's pointing to this great event that we celebrate today, the death of Messiah and the resurrection of Messiah. 
And he wants us to know it. So he drops all these, these foreshadowing events throughout the scripture. So when it happens, we know, we see, this is clearly what God has been doing. And so we're gonna look at the, the story of a young man named Joseph. And his entire life, really, is a, a, a picture of what God is going to do, how God is gonna solve the problem, how, how he is going to resolve the conflict between uh, the alienation between man and God. We've been working through Genesis and we've seen Jacob and we've seen Isaac. Uh, the last 14 chapters, really the lion's share of the book, belong to a man named Joseph who really pictures what God is going to do. How is he going to bring us back to himself. So let me jump into Genesis chapter 37. We'll unpack his story and, and I'll, hopefully you'll just be able to see this is what God has been doing from the beginning. Verse one, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph bought, brought a bad report of them to their father. So remember, Jacob, Israel, is his name didn't change, has 12 sons. Joseph is the 11th, but he is the firstborn of his favorite wife, Rachel. And at this, at this point, he's 17 years old. Basically, he's a high school junior. And if you remember his story from before how he was born, he, he was born, really, he's a miraculous baby. His mother was barren. She couldn't have children. And God miraculously, when, when Jacob is old, he opens her womb and she has Joseph. And here he is, 17 years old, and we find a little information about him. He is pasturing the flock of his father, which means he is a shepherd. He's a shepherd. And he's apparently a good one because when his brothers are out messing around, in his honesty, he comes to his dad and said, hey, they're messing around. And that doesn't exactly endear their, him to his brothers. No one likes a rat, right? No one likes a narc. Uh, and so they, they despise him. So verse three. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. So favoritism we've seen is run in this family. Joseph is the favorite, which makes some tension already. But then his father gives him a robe, a, a, some sort of multicolor, something that had long sleeves. It, the point is, it made him distinct. It set him apart from his brothers. And the idea was, this is my chosen son. He is actually, because he's wearing this, he has been given the, the double portion. He is going to be the heir. Even though he's 11th in line, he's actually gonna be in charge. The family is gonna go to him. And so all his brothers are walking around in sweatshirts from Walmart, and he gets the Lululemon. And it makes them mad. They are jealous of him. Jealous that their father loves him more. Jealous that he is the one who's been given the authority. And to make it worse, he has a dream. Verse five. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hate him even more. He said, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around, and it bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. A dream back then was considered divine revelation. So he says, I had this dream, and it basically says, I'm gonna be your ruler. I'm gonna be your king. 
And obviously, they already hate him because his father loves him more. They hate him because he's gonna be in charge. They hate him because he's honest. And now they hate him because he says he's gonna be in charge of them. Next verse. He has another dream, right? He dreamed another and told it to his, his uh, excuse me, I lost my place here. And he dreamed another dream, verse nine. He told it to his brother and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. And said, what is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to this ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept these sayings in mind. So he has another one. He tells his dad this time, and his dad's like, so, so now I'm going to bow to you, and your brothers are going to bow to you? Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't have given him the, the robe. And his brothers are jealous, again, even more jealous. But there's an interesting thing at the end there. It says his father kept these, his, this in his mind. Another way you could say it is he, he was pondering it, right? He was thinking about it. What does that mean? What is this dreaming? Because he's had dreams before. His dad knows that there's some, some significance to his dreams. And already, we're only a few verses in. Do you see a little bit of the foreshadowing? Can you think of anyone else Anyone else who was born of a woman who was barren, a miraculous birth, who was a good shepherd, who was loved by his father but hated by his brothers because he had been given authority and because he was honest, who had a promise of divine elevation and exaltation, whose parents pondered all these things in their heart, treasured these things in their heart. Does that sound familiar? Let's continue, verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture the flock, father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock of Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, here I am. So he sent, said to them, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Shechem, uh, a couple chapters ago, things grow sideways in Shechem. So Jacob is obviously worried about his sons. You get too close to Shechem, it makes you a mess. So he says, Joe. I need you to go check on your brothers, make sure things haven't gone sideways. And he says, here I am. He's obedient. He's gonna go, even though he knows his brothers don't exactly like him. So verse 15, the man found him wandering in the fields. The man said, what are you seeking? He said, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, they've gone far away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And as he's coming... Probably they see him because he's got his robe on. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. So they mock him. Here comes the dreamer. Here comes dad's boy, daddy's boy the one who's gonna be king, they conspire. How do we, let's kill him. Let's throw him in the pit. Let's throw his body in the pit. Then we'll make up a story. Then we'll see what happens of these dreams. Can you think of anyone else who was sent by the father, who was obedient to the father, who pursued his brothers, even though they were hostile to him, they conspired to kill him. They mocked him, saying things like, if you're the son of God, why don't you come down from the cross? See, anyone else in the Bible you think about? Verse 21, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. 
that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben says, we don't want to kill him. Right? Now remember, Reuben is the oldest. He's kind of the leader of the group right now. He said, we don't need to kill him ourselves. Let's just put him in the pit. Let the pit kill him. But really, he was going to rescue him. He was actually gonna save him out because he doesn't want the responsibility. But instead, verse 23, they grab him. And Joseph came to his brothers. They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and they threw him in a pit. And the pit was empty and there was no water in it. So they grab him, they take his clothes off, they throw him in the pit, there's no water. The idea is they're gonna let him die of exposure. He's gonna die of thirst. That's what's gonna kill him eventually. He's going to die of hunger and thirst, verse 25. And they sat down to eat. Imagine that, they just threw their brother in a pit and just in the callous sense they have down, sit down, pass the, the ham sandwiches. Simeon, any Doritos left. And they're eating and they look up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels barreling gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. The Ishmaelites were the cousins of their family. Remember, Abraham had Isaac and Ishmael, and so they're related. And this is a bunch of traders carrying things like balm, which would be for healing, and spices, and, and myrrh, which would be for burial and anointing. And they say, verse 26, Judah, who's the fourthborn, says to their brothers, what, what profit is there if we kill him? We don't need to kill him, right? He's our brother. So let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, he's our own flesh. And his brothers listened. And the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and he sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. That's the price of a slave, right? So they sold him. They don't wanna get their hands dirty. We don't, we don't wanna kill them, but we'll let someone else do it. And so they sell them into the hands of the Gentiles for the price of a slave. And by the way, Judah comes up with this idea. The name Judah, it's a common name for Jewish boys in that day, especially in the New Testament. It's often rendered in the New Testament, Jude or Judas, same name. Can you think of anybody in the Bible who was stripped of his robe who was put in a place of exposure to die, who even said, I thirst, who was sold for the price of a slave in his day by a man named Judas, who was handed over to the Gentiles, the Romans, so that they wouldn't have to deal with it, had one of the leaders actually try to rescue him, a man named Pilate, who said, I, I see nothing wrong with him, he's innocent who ended up going down to Egypt to save his life, carried with spices and, and burial spices away into a tomb, but would become the sweetness of life. Anybody? Can you think of anybody in the Bible? Verse 29, let's continue. Reuben returns, he obviously wasn't there, to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and, not, and, and I, where shall I go? Obviously, he, he didn't want this to happen, but now it's happened. And so they have to come with a, with a plan. They gotta, they gotta come up with a, a lie to tell their father. So verse 31, they took Joseph's robe, they slaughtered a goat, they dipped the robe in blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn 
to pieces and Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for days. And all his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So they had to come up with this, this hoax to tell their dad, all right, that, that he was killed. And so they create this elaborate story. They, they kill a goat. They dip his robe in blood. It's ironic because Jacob deceives his brother and his father with a goat, and now he is being deceived with a goat. But for the brothers, they pulled it off. Problem solved. Joseph is gone. We never have to deal with him again. And there's just no remorse. They're just lying to their dad straight up. For Jacob, he believes his son is dead. He's never gonna see him again. But is there any, anyone else in the scripture who uh, there was an elaborate hoax uh, saying that he was really dead, but he wasn't really dead? Maybe uh, Matthew 28, where the Pharisees said, tell them that the disciples came by night and stole his body. If this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread to the Jews of this day. A lie about a death, but he's not dead. Verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt, to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. They think he's dead. To the brothers, he's as good as dead, but he is very much alive, and he's in the house of the captain of the guard of Pharaoh. And, and we're, what we're gonna see over the next few weeks, well, fast forward, we're not gonna look at it today, but as the story unfolds, right, and here's some spoilers ahead, Joseph is gonna grow in favor in Potiphar's house. He's gonna rise up to be basically in charge of everything, right? He's going to be in charge of everything that is Potiphar's. And then he is going to be tempted by the wife of Potiphar. And he is going to resist temptation. He is not going to sin. He is going to flee it. And then he will be falsely accused and arrested despite the fact that he is innocent. And then he's gonna be humiliated. He's gonna be thrown into a prison, into a pit and forgotten. And then one day he's gonna come out of that pit and he is gonna be exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh himself. And not only that, then what's gonna happen is there's gonna be a famine and he is going to save not only the entire nation, but he is going to save his brothers who are gonna come to him, the ones who sold him, and he is going to forgive them and he is going to restore them and he is gonna provide them bread, in essence being the bread of life to save the world. Is there anyone else in the Bible that you can think of that those things will be true. You, do you see how this story, it, it foreshadows what God would do, that God would someday send someone who would be born miraculously, who would be a good shepherd, who would be loved by the Father, who would be hated by his brothers because they were jealous and because of his authority. He would be promised divine exaltation. His parents would treasure and ponder these things in his heart. He would be sent by the Father. He would be obedient to the Father. He would pursue his brothers who were hostile to him. They would conspire to kill him. They would sell him to the Gentiles by a man named Judas for the price of a slave. They would mock him. They would strip him. They would put him in a place of exposure. The leaders would try to save him, but he would still die. Then there would be a hoax created to cover. He would be tempted without sin. 
He would be accused, but he would be innocent. He would be humiliated and put down in a pit, but he would be brought out and exalted to the right hand of the king so that he could save not only his brothers, but he could save the world. It's Jesus. It is Jesus, the Messiah. God has been shouting it and screaming it throughout the Old Testament, pointing to Jesus of Nazareth. And here's here's the thing about foreshadowing is often you miss those hints. You don't see it, you don't quite get it until after, right? Until after, oh, that's, that's why he was doing the crane technique. Oh, that's why he, he handed in the Bible. Oh, that's why. You don't see it till after. And that, that's the way it is with Jesus. I mean, even his own disciples, how many times did he tell them, I'm going to the cross? Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show the disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Many things. He was gonna be killed and he'd be raised on the third day. And as soon as he says that, it's like it goes over their head. Peter says, no, 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 that's not gonna happen, Jesus. And he rebukes them. That'll never happen, Jesus. A few chapters later, he tells them again, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests, the scribes. They'll condemn him to death and deliver him and he's gonna be raised. And the next thing that happens is James and John say, yeah, that's, that's great. Can we sit next to you in the kingdom, Jesus? That's all they're thinking about. When he institutes the Lord's Supper, this is my body given for you. This is my blood of the new covenant. The next thing you see is them sleeping in the garden. And then after he's been crucified, what are they doing? They're hiding. They weren't waiting for the resurrection. They're hiding. They don't know what they're going to do. There's even this great scene in Luke 24 when the day of the resurrection on the road to Emmaus where these two, two disciples are, are walking and talking and Jesus joins them. And he asks them, what are y'all talking about? And they say to him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened these days? He said, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers, they delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day of these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus says to them, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophet spoke. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. He's like, I was telling you guys, I was dropping hints for days. All these things pointing to this. And so he, what he does is he, from the beginning of Moses, Moses is Genesis, this very story that we just looked at briefly. He probably said, do you remember that promise that the seed of a woman would crush the head of the serpent, that he would be bruised on his heel? but he would crush his head, that was me. Remember Joseph, his story, how he went down into Egypt, he was in a pit and he came out and now he's exalted to the right hand, that's me. And he took the scriptures and he showed, it's all been about me. This is how God was going to solve the problem, the problem of our alienation between him and us because our sin separated. He was going to send one that was perfect, that lived the perfect life, that would die. It was necessary. That was the plan all along. And, and maybe they meant it for evil, just like with Joseph. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. That God was reconciling man to himself. Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins. 
the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he could bring us back to himself. It's, it's as if God has been screaming at the entire scripture, speak of this is how I'm dealing with this, this problem. I'm gonna send my son. And he is going to die, but he didn't end there. He comes out of the grave. See, if Joseph's story is he goes down to Egypt and it's over, that's just a tragedy. That's, that's, that's a sad story. But Joseph doesn't just go down to Egypt. He ends up reigning in Egypt. If Jesus just dies on a cross and he's put in a tomb and that's it, that's just a tragedy. But the resurrection is our victory. It, is, it changes everything. It shows that the problem of our sin has been solved. The conflict of the narrative of scripture has been resolved. That sin and death and Satan have been defeated because Jesus is alive. And where is he? We talked about it earlier. We sing about it. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is he seated? He is seated because his work is finished. It is done. His last words on the cross. It is finished. Paid in full complete. It's done. And the difference between Joseph and Jesus, there's obviously a lot of them, but here's the big one. Joseph does not know what God is doing in his life. Jesus did. He did. He knew exactly what the father was doing. Joseph did not do it willingly. He was taken against his will. Jesus comes and dies willingly so that he can say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. So that he can say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. And this is what the New Testament responds to, looking back at the cross. The Old Testament's looking forward, all pointing to Jesus. The New Testament is looking back at what he has done and says now, like John's gospel at the end, many things Jesus did. So many things we couldn't write them down. But these I've written down, John, so that you may believe and having believed have life. God has made it so clear for us. This is what I am doing. I don't want you to miss it. He's got all these arrows pointing to this, this one person, Jesus of Nazareth, that he is life. Because he doesn't want us to miss it. And the resurrection is his exclamation point. It's him putting it in bold letters. This is what I am doing for you. I'm doing it for you. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him would not perish. God does not want us to perish. And so he sends his son and he reveals his son and he points to his son so that we could believe. Not so that we could be nice, not so we could be kind, not so we could do good deeds, not so we could go to church. He doesn't say those things. He says, so that you believe in him and having believed, have life in his name. This is what God is doing. This is what we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. This is how God solved the problem of our sin how we were alienated, the tension that we caused because we ran away. Because the reality is we are the ones, in essence, who sold Jacob into slavery. We are the ones who nailed Jesus to the cross. But yet he proved his love for us and that while we're sinners, Christ died for us. And that's what we celebrate. 
this Easter. That's what God has been doing. That's what he's still doing. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, your response is just, it's just rejoice. Rejoice that you are so loved by God. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what mistakes you have made, you are so loved by God that you, that he laid himself down for you. And now, what can separate you from the love of God? Nothing. Not your sin, not your rebellion, not coronavirus, not isolation. Nothing can separate you. That's why we rejoice. The resurrection proves that, that he is the son of God and that we are forgiven. And we know how this ends, right? Even this, this chaotic period of, of our country and our world's history where we're like, when are we gonna be back together? We don't know, but we know how it ends ultimately. It ends with us, with the Savior, because of what Jesus has done. So it's a day of rejoicing. We can rejoice because we have one. And that's why every year we come back to Easter and we remember the resurrection. We constantly remember. I will often go back on YouTube and watch the highlights from the 2018 Super Bowl because I just want to remember. And I actually go back to 2008 World Series and I watch that too because I want to remember. But see, those are little victories. Jesus won the greatest victory. And so we come back and constantly remember and we sing and we proclaim, he is risen, he is risen indeed. And if you're watching this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, and we are so glad that you have kind of tuned in, and, and, and here the message for you is this, God wants you to see his son. He wants you to believe Right? He wants you to see that he was the promised one from the beginning, that, that, that the plan before the foundation of the world was that he would send his son to die in your place for your sins. And he lifted him up so that all might see him. In fact, there's an illustration in John 3 where Jesus says, just like Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, they, all the Israelites got bit by snakes and the only way to be cured from the, the snake bite was to look at this bronze serpent that was in the middle of the camp. And if they looked, they lived. If they refused to look, they died. And Jesus takes that and he says, that's me, the son of man. Just like Moses lifts up the serpent, I must be lifted up so that all may see me. And if you look, if you believe, you live. And so I would encourage you this morning to see Jesus, to see the father's love for the world that he gives him his son, that he died for you in your place. He took your sin so that you could have eternal life. He wants you to see it. He wants you to know it. He's foreshadowed it from the Old Testament. He's looking back at it in the new because he wants you and him to be right relationship again and to have eternal life. And if you have questions about that, if you're struggling with that, please let us know. You can click on the link in the in the, on the video stream, we'll reach out to you because we want you to know this Jesus who loves you and who gave himself from you. But church, we're gonna sing. We wanna revel in this. We wish we could do it in this room, but we can't, but that's okay because Jesus is still alive. He's still ruling and reigning. He's seated at the right hand and he is pleased with his church. He loves his church. So let's think about that as we just sing for a few more moments. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of a resurrected savior. I pray that you um, right now would even be encouraging your people throughout Savannah and beyond of the truth that Jesus is alive, that you foretold it, that you made it clear uh, through prophecies, through typology, through foreshadowing what you would do because you loved us. 
Thank you that so many saw him, that so many experienced, even Thomas, who got to touch his hands and touch his side. And the disciples go to their graves believing and knowing that you are alive. And so we believe and we know that you are alive, that you are still moving, that you're still forgiving, that you're still loving. And nothing, not height, nor death, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We thank you for that truth in Christ's name.